The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 95. Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Make it so. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing Breaking the Ice, an Enterprise episode. Joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. Well, hello from Studio 317 of the Sleep in SeaTac Airport. <laughs> I had to, so I had to riff on a good friend, uh, Captain Jeff Nielsen, and his uh, airline pilot guy. I'm visi- <laughs> going to be visiting my folks this week, but I'm at an airport hotel right now. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, and Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So, uh, folks, if you can, I would just want to remind you to share the podcast with your friends uh, to help us grow the community of listeners and to reach more people. Uh, we just come off of just, you know, the the, the uh, wonderful first season of Picard. Well, I hope it's wonderful. We're recording this before <laughs> that We're, we're crossing our fingers. One is living in hope. Yes, living in hope. Uh, and and we, we're going to have uh, Star Trek Discovery coming and so many other new Star Trek uh, series that we're going to be discussing, as well as continuing these discussions. And so, please, you know, this is a great time to be a Star Trek fan and to listen to Star Trek podcasts. So please encourage others to check it out and maybe they'd enjoy what we have to offer. Uh, notwithstanding the sort of dog of a episode of Enterprise we're talking oh, about today. Oh, boy, this episode <laughs> is not good. There's a couple of nice moments, and I oh, just yeah. want to make sure we, we talk about those. But it is, uh, I, I was left with the overall impression from this. Again, we're talking about the Enterprise episode, Breaking the Ice. Uh, it's a first season episode. I was left with the question of why was this episode made? Like, what where, What did we advance about? To, to the, fill a slot in the schedule is why it was made. Right. But there's there's no villain in this. There, there are basically no dramatic stakes it's just moving the plot moves from solving one minor inconvenience to encountering and solving another minor inconvenience so right. the whole episode comes across as a series of minor inconveniences which is yep. not a gripping episode there's a very small character movement in this that and that's about very it very subtle the only the only thing that really changes the status quo is we have the sort of maybe kind of, but they're still in denial about it. Beginning of a friendship between Trip and Paul. Yep. <laughs> right. Right. So let's let's talk about the episode. One of the things that that is apparently a big part of this is this fan mail for the crew of the Enterprise from school Fourth kids graders. back on Earth. Yes. Um, Which... At first, it's Trip's uh, niece's school class or nephews. What is like family member, a uh, small child. And then another one is this Irish um, uh, class. School class, yeah. Yeah, for, from Ireland. So uh, we have, and it sort of connects to how people were feeling about, and still do, about the today the astronauts on the International mm-hmm. Space Station and how they, 
you know, communicate with school kids and they get fan mail. And it's still a right. big deal for us here. And it's sort of giving us this idea that the Enterprise, as the first Warp 5 capable Earth vessel, is still a big deal to the people back home. I yeah. guess that's the, the whole thing. So, I mean, I, I thought that was kind of a kind of a nice. Nice touch again, like you mentioned, Dom. That connection between like the Apollo program and ice, the the space shuttle and the ISS, and where they would do yes. this on a regular basis. Yeah, right. and I didn't mind this element. It's just clearly filler. Yes yeah. the the two the two scenes where they have it are very much filler. I did like that the fact that they did not make T'Pol into being cynical about the kids. Yeah, like, it is a crude but surprisingly accurate drawing. She says at one yeah. point of a kid's crayon drawing. And I, I I was happy they did that, that they didn't make her like into like a, a snob about the kids. So yeah. that was a nice a moment. Um, Me- meanwhile, Archer decides to play cruise ship captain by <laughs> stopping the ship and telling everybody about the amazing comet that's off the starboard bow. Yeah, I'm and, with the Vulcans on this one. Oh, man. <laughs> it's like, okay. And, and they make such a huge deal over this comet, which is like the central MacGuffin of the story. Yes. Yeah. yeah, but they make this huge deal because this is an undiscovered comet, and it's like, okay, there are estimated to be a trillion comets in our solar system alone. Right. <laughs> Finding a new one is not a big deal. A comet is a big snowball with rock. Yes. So then they have a fallback because we've got to follow this comet for several days to make the story work. So we need another reason besides it's undiscovered. It's Archer's Comet now. Why we need to follow this thing. And they say it's got a diameter of this is the central nucleus, of course, not the tail. Right. Uh, but it's got a diameter of 82.6 kilometers, which in English is 51 miles. And it's the biggest humans or Vulcans have ever seen, except for. The comet of 1729, which has a nucleus of approximately 100 kilometers, and also <laughs> C2002VW94, which also has a nucleus of about 100 kilometers. So, sorry, this is, this is not the biggest thing we've ever seen. And even if it was, who cares? <laughs> well, right. I mean, if, you, if they were wanted to do that, they should have made it like, a thousand kilometers, like a giant yeah. snowball. Like it this, should have this been is the size of the massive. comet that destroyed the dinosaurs. I mean, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And so then they have their third backup plan to make it interesting, which is to Paul, even though she's initially totally poo-pooed this comet, rightly so. Yes. She's discovered by scanning it that it contains Icilium, which is explained to be a rare mineral that even Vulcan scientists don't know much about because it's ne- they've never gotten enough of it to thoroughly study it. So suddenly there is a reason to be interested in this comet, and Vulcans are going to show up, but they totally don't care about the Icilium for some reason. <laughs> right, right. Because again, you've got human curiosity versus the Vulcan pragmatism. Except Vulcans are scientists who have explorer ships. They are curious. Yeah. But they don't actually explore. Right. They actually landed on Earth when they saw a, a warp-capable vessel because they were curious. I mean, this is the, this, the, the one thing about this first season of Enterprise that kept bugging me was it's sort of they, – they kept wanting to take everything about Vulcans and sort of make it a negative. And, yeah. and like and talk it down and it's well, like and that, and that was one of the big critiques of the 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 series when it first came out is you took this race that was seen as the greatest 
friends of humanity, much beloved. Of course, you know, one of the most beloved characters of the original Star Trek was Spock, a Vulcan. And right. they tried to make them almost the bad guys the entire series. Right. Yeah, I, I partially, I mean, I understood why people didn't like that. I partially understood it from a writing perspective, because you need to show how relationships develop over time. And so it makes sense from a writing perspective to say, maybe we and the Vulcans weren't best buds right from the beginning, as we can grow into that, you know, Gilgamesh and Uruk at Enkidu. <laughs> right. But, well, actually, Gilgamesh and Enkidu at Uruk. Right. But what should have happened once, as soon as they established that this comet's got this rare mineral even Vulcans don't know much about, it should be like, hey, rare mineral, let's team up. Let's break right. the ice that way. Let's break the ice together. Yay. What a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So meanwhile, uh, T'Pol gets a, a Vulcan email and, and seems disturbed by it. And we, we, we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, Trip Tucker. Uh, is in the mess hall late at night and is uh, apparently a Texan who loves pecan pie. Well, surprise. He's a Floridian. I thought he was from... Oh, okay. Sorry. Mm, he's uh, Floridian. Uh, I've got my accents and Southerners mixed up. But anyway, a Southerner who it's loves okay. pecan pie. It's okay. I can't distinguish very well with accents above the Mason-Dixon line. Well, it, it, well, it <laughs> New York help is, much Bostonians. His, his na native accent is more like Californian anyways, the actor's native well, accent. Well, yeah. And he slips right, into it true. frequently. Right. Uh, but uh, anyway, we he, he whaps his rhapsodic about pecan pie. Uh, we we learn that Vulcans are unaffected by caffeine, which shouldn't be all that surprising, because different metabolisms, different biologies. Like maybe mm -hmm. it's maybe milk is what you know gets them hyper, <laughs> which would be a, actually a funny episode. <laughs> that would be funny. <laughs> um, and Tucker to Paul seem closer here. They see there's less suspicion. Remember that one. Episode of a few episodes ago, where they were trapped on that planet and with the hallucinogenic spores, and Tucker was all like, "Ah, Vulcan's bad." And now they they seem to be a little closer. They've kind of broken down mm -hmm. some of the barriers, which is interesting. Uh, and then then we enter into the the, the sort of the uh, the fly in the ointment here is a, a Vulcan ship approaches, um, and we have this Captain Vanek who, as soon as he's on on the view screen. Looks contemptuous <laughs> at the yeah. like. It's like, oh, these humans I have to deal with. Ugh. Uh, from the moment that from the moment he begins, and he's insulting. He says, uh, "Are you lost?" Which is nice and insulting right off the bat. And then says, "There, we're wondering why humans are interested in this comet, and we're just going to stay and watch the Enterprise crew if you don't mind." You know, just sort of really obnoxious and annoying. Yeah, and 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 it's kind of like a little kid. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. You know, <laughs> right, right. The the also Archer notes that we've recently been encountering a Vulcan Vulcan ships when they shouldn't really be around. Like remember three weeks ago in the episode we never saw, and right. we encountered a Vulcan ship at a nebula. And so Archer basically thinks the Vulcans are stalking them, that they're they're trying to serve as they're afraid the humans are going to mess stuff up in the galaxy, and so they're trying to lurk around us as minders. Yes. What? What? Well, that's that's the one thing that kind of comes up for me. What do the Vulcans think the humans are going to mess up? I mean, they wandering around being minders for all the other species too. Like, Maybe. what is this? I mean, are they they're like the the policemen, the nannies of the Alpha Quadrant? Well, I think there's what probably the is, idea too, though, that the Vulcans kind of feel like they're they are caretakers and nannies of the human race because they were the ones to discover them, et cetera, et cetera. 
Yeah. yeah. And, and it's not like necessarily they're being minders for every race, but all the new non-established ones that they yeah. haven't Vulcan helloed. Um, the, uh, <laughs> also though, isn't it, isn't it, uh, to Paul's job to be our minder? Why do we need a series of ships lurking around too? Maybe they don't trust her anymore. Maybe she's yeah. become too human. Um, yeah, and of course that's part of the plot line of this episode. We find out why these ships are lurking around and it has not, right. it, not so much observing enterprise. Right. And then, uh, and of course they've, they've also ticked off the Andorians, uh, we, as we saw, uh, last episode. So uh, I have to say that some nice thought went into the design of the comet surface. Malcolm and and uh, and Meriwether uh, go head down to the surface mm-hmm. to do a core sample. And uh, but would a comet surface be covered in snow, or would it just be ice and rock? Ice and rock. I, that was my thought too. Is would it actually be shapeable into a snowman? Yeah, yeah, it's. I think it would be more ice and rock because this thing rotates with respect to the sun, and we know it's close enough to a sun that it has a tail. Mm-hmm. Right. So that means as it rotates, the one side of the nucleus gets heated and stuff gets blown off. And then as it rotates away from the sun, it's going to refreeze as ice, not snow. It's not like a snowfall on a comet. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Oh, oh boy, do I have a comment coming up about that. (laughs) And, you know, one thing, too, is to to be fair, I mean, as fair as we can be to this episode, this was before the uh, mission a few years ago where the, was it the European Space Agency landed a probe on on the comet going by i can't remember i can't remember all the details but right. i know there was one recently where they they did land a probe mm-hmm. on the comet so yeah right also the the reason they're landing is because they can't use the transporter to get at the icilium deposits because they're 20 meters deep and i'm going really this thing you can't beam through 20 meters of, of water. Ice. <laughs> yeah. You can get thousands of kilometers of space, but not 20 meters of water. Wow. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because an atmosphere of a planet probably has the yeah. equivalent of 20 meters of water. <laughs> yep. So, uh, meanwhile, Trip and Hoshi have found evidence of a secret encrypted transmission to T'Pol, the email she was looking at earlier. And so Archer tells Hoshi to decrypt it because he's suspicious of the Vulcans that think he thinks it's a secret spying thing. Uh, yeah. Then we have this long scene in the middle of everything that stops everything. Actually, before we get to that, I, yep. I want to make a comment about uh, when Mayweather and Malcolm are going down to the comet. They're okay. in the shuttle. They're in a shuttle pod and they're talking about comets and, and Mayweather is all excited because he's never even seen snow before. Cause you know, he's yep. spent his life growing up on a spaceship. And he's he's never stood on a comet before, and he doesn't know if anyone has ever stood on a comet before. And he asks Malcolm, do you know if anyone has ever stood on a comet before? And Malcolm says, I don't know. And it's like, okay, if this was the real 22nd century, mm-hmm. at this point, one of them would have said, hey, Siri, has anyone stood on a comet before? <laughs> <laughs> and Siri would reply, yes, you doofuses. It's the 22nd century, and we're a spacefaring civilization. <laughs> no, no, in the 22nd century, Siri will still say, here, let me show you some web pages that may answer Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even in the 22nd century, it will still be doing that. So, uh, yes. And then, uh, and then it, we have this long scene on the bridge of Archer and the crew answering kids' questions from back home. Like this totally non sequitur, out of nowhere, like... Uh, may, at, 
asking about dating. Can you date on the ship? And it, that answer was awkward because he's going on about, well, there's not a lot of privacy, but there are places you can go. And I'm like, ew, they're fourth graders. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> these, these weren't like, you know, high schoolers or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. And Archer made a point of you sent so many questions. I'm going to only be able to pick a few. And then he selects the weirdest most awkward questions yeah yeah <laughs> right. is that one of the has the toilet question which is to be fair actually a, a fairly no. practical question for kids on earth who probably don't have to think about that although i would well, i would wonder is, if they didn't yeah. if earth by that time didn't have some kind of replicator toilet technology mm-hmm. i was gonna say kids would ask a poop question that's definitely what fourth graders would ask <laughs> but uh yes and trip i like the <laughs> trip gets upset that he that he has to take the the poop question not like Warped uh, five engine or all that other stuff. He's the sanitation engineer, and then of course we get Doctor Flox, who goes on and on and on ad nauseum on uh, viruses in space that he has to get uh, cut off. And all of the characters in this scene, including Archer, well, everyone except Flox, is acting really awkward in answering right. these questions. And I guess we're supposed to find that amusing and humorous, right? Or you know, endearing because they're not really good at being actors because they're mm-hmm. actors acting that like they're not going to act something like that anyway. But uh, yes, but we have, but it, it's, the scene goes on for minutes of this episode. Like, the, mm-hmm. and then yeah. like, it has no bearing on the rest of the episode. I, I, <laughs> I, I said this, we, we re- just recently recorded an episode of Dr. Who and I said it, it looked like they had a 45 minute story that they needed to stretch to an hour. That's exactly yeah. what this looks like as well. They had a, four, a 30 minute story that they had to stretch to 45 minutes. Right, I think that's. Oh, oh, think they had like a twenty-minute story. They needed to stretch (laughs) to forty-five. I mean, over half of this thing is padding. Yes. Uh, Speaking of padding, Reed and Merriweather on the comet. They're making a snowman, but Archer's a party pooper. Yeah. So as they're making the snowman, they they are they're well, they do a couple things. They the first thing they do is they blow like a two meter crater in the ice. Well, they haven't done that yet. They do that okay, after okay. they've made go, the snowman. Yeah, yeah, right. Go ahead with the snowman. Yeah. So they make the snowman. Archer's a party pooper. It says, uh, you know, hey, the Vulcans are watching. Don't make us look f- frivolous with your snowman building. It's like, what? You know, hey, come on. You We're know, human beings. We're having fun. I, one thing I will say, though, after the Pajem episode, it's nice to see Malcolm actually with a sense of humor and some excitement instead of Mr. Security Party Pooper. Yes, that's true. That is true. Give them some yeah. personality. But but then when we come back to them, not only have they not dismantled the snowman, they've yeah. added a Vul- Vulcan ears and a Vulcan haircut to it. And it's like, <laughs> didn't Archer just de- say, we want to make a good impression on the Vulcans, and now you're making a snowman so that it deliberately mocks them? A snowman, yeah. and then, you, and then you're going to blow, blow up. it up. Yeah. Yeah, th- yeah, then they blow it up to make their, their crater. Yeah, so these humans are making an effigy of us and blowing it up. They have a custom known as burning in effigy. I believe that's what they're doing here, Captain Vanek. That's racist. <laughs> so, and then, uh, then we're back to T'Pol. It turns out that, the as Trip finds out, Hoshi decrypts T'Pol's message, but doesn't read it. She gives it to Trip to run through the translator, and he reads it and finds out it's a very personal message to T'Pol. And now Trip feels bad for having read it. And uh, he's he tells Archer that I'm going to tell her that I read it. And so he goes to her and she's well, understandably before, upset. Be, before that, he says, you could order me to tell you what it says, but you will regret it if you do. So right. Archer, so Archer doesn't yeah. order him. So t- at this point, they've set it up 
implausibly, because of course Hoshi's going to translate it. That's part of her job. Right. Trip is the only one who knows what this thing says. And that's right. going to be as implausible as it is. That's going to be the thing that gets to Paul and Trip to start bonding. Right. Right. Well, I, I kind of chuckled where not just is Hoshi this master translator, she's also apparently a master cracker who can crack Vulcan encryption, but didn't actually read yeah. it, although she could read Vulcan fluently. Right. Yeah. That, <laughs> right. that makes no sense. How do you know the translation's right if you haven't read it and it made sense? Right. Right. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. You're not sure. How do you know it's decrypted accurately? But uh, but in any case, we go here. Uh, Archer. The, one of the reasons Archer wanted them to decrypt it is is because uh, to Paul had er, agreed as a condition of being the science officer that all communications back to Vulcan, you know, official communications back to Vulcan would go through him. And so this secret message looks like she's uh, breaking that agreement. So that's that's mm-hmm. why they're doing this. They established that at least. Yeah. So, so, so Trip is now going to tell to Paul that he's read the super personal letter, and he decide, and apparently that's going to involve throwing Captain Archer under the bus because it was <laughs> Archer who ordered him to decode it. Right. And he decides to tell her while she's on duty on the bridge. On the bridge. <laughs> yeah. Not like where she could have some time to absorb the emotional impact of this in private when she's off duty somewhere. Right. And, and then he decides to apologize to her by telling her how suspicious she was acting. That's always a great way to apologize to someone is by yeah. blaming them for what led to this. If yeah. you just didn't yeah. act so strange and suspicious, I wouldn't have had to do the thing I did that I now regret. Yeah, that works well. Yeah, and then she does the, I have more letters in my quarters. Would you like to read those too? Oh, yeah. ouch. Oh, yeah. yes. Burn. Been, been on that in that doghouse. <laughs> so, <laughs> also, back on the back on the comet, um, Malcolm and uh, Mayweather blow a two meter hole in the ice so yeah. that they've knocked two meters off the eighteen that they can't beam through. Right, and and now they're going to drill to get to the Icilium samples. Right, and it's like, why did we go through all this thing with setting charges and stuff? If just stick on another two meter extender on your drill. <laughs> You know, there was no reason to blow a hole in this thing if you've got an two meters of snow. Yeah. (laughs) But and here's where my comment about drilling comes in. The Malcolm is talking about and this is them attempting to shoehorn real science into this episode and failing miserably. Yep. Malcolm says the farther down in the ice you drill, the farther back in time you go. And at that point, Siri should pipe up and say, not on a comet, you doofus. They <laughs> yeah. don't experience seasons except when they come near a sun. That just blows stuff off of them and reheats the surface. It doesn't mean they lay down layers of snow like an ice core on Earth. Right. <laughs> right. The right. stuff at the totally center of this comet wrong. has been at the center of this comet since the solar system formed. It didn't form in layers. Right, right. All, the entire comet it has been the way it is. Yeah. So uh, Archer decides to uh, to deal with Vanek, the Vulcan captain, straight on by inviting him to dinner uh, to make him ease, and he asks T'Pol to help with that, uh, to which he agrees. And then uh, we have T'Pol visiting sick bay because she has a tension headache and hasn't been sleeping. Uh, again, we're supposed to... Uh, this is an opportunity for Flocks to advise her to uh, talk to someone, to, to see, to, to, to get it off her chest, whatever's bothering her. And so she doesn't want to talk to anyone on the ship about her personal business 
except now that Trip is revealed, he'll be the one person she can talk to. So this sets that that whole thing up. Uh, we have this dinner with Vanek, which is awkward to the extreme. Uh, he doesn't eat. He acts insulting. He's already he act- eaten, he says. <laughs> right. He's been invited to dinner, but he yeah. ate before he came. He acts contemptuous and completely uninterested in the Enterprise or its crew. And as Vanek leaves, he says something to invoke into DePaul, which I don't think we ever get a translation of. Nope, but he's obviously mad. Yeah. Sean uh, shut tomorrow, come off, he says. Yeah, it's apparently something connected with the email she got. Probably right. something like, this is the people you want to stay with? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, so about this dinner, Picard, or not Picard, Archer finally, after all this rudeness from Vanek, says, "What you know, how long are you going to be spying on us? And Vanek is like, if we were spying on you, you wouldn't even know we were here. Right. So we get a little bit of pushback by the end of this really awkward minutes-long scene. But in real life, either T'Pol should have said to him in Vulcan, or Archer should have said to him in English, you are breaking protocol. You are being rude to humans by coming to a human dinner and already having eaten and not having anything, not eating anything that's been prepared for you, even though it's Vulcan cuisine and your favorite dish, and not having anything to talk about. Your staff or you personally have done an inadequate job in understanding the cultural protocols required for this occasion. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like he 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 specifically wants to be insulting. I mean, like there's no diplomatic sense about him, no sense that he has to be at all, uh, you know, sensitive to other cultures. I mean, it's, at one point he says to Archer, "You're easily impressed." Like, mm-hmm. I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, like, are you trying well, to provoke him? And again, and, and this is bad writing in general because you can be. Emotion, you know, not can't say emotionless because we we know Vulcans are never emotionless. They just have control of their emotions without being a jerk, without just being an absolute cold blooded jerk. And that's what this this guy was almost delighting right. in being a jerk. Right. Yeah. right. And this scene really encapsulates a lot of what this episode is about because this is a very awkward scene based on implausible artificial tensions. Yeah. that the writers have set up and that's the whole episode in in microcosm it's it's the whole episode feels awkward based on implausible artificial tensions that the writers have set up because in the end what we're what the whole episode is about is about archer overcoming his prejudices against the vulcans his assumptions against the vulcans uh and asking for help and setting aside his pride which could lead to the death or you know injury of his own crew members uh, so, so I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit on that, but but and to Paul overcoming her uh, prejudices about about humans and deciding that she kind of likes serving on the ship. So it's this that's the breaking the ice we're supposed to be getting it where this is the 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 beginning of the thaw in human Vulcan relations. I guess is is this idea, but it just comes across as well the Vulcans a jerk, but we have to you know we have to accept that and be nice to them. I guess. Uh, the the action sequence in this whole episode is is back on the comet where uh, Archer tells Reed that the the charges shifted the orbit of the comet and so and they'll be like, in direct you sunlight. Didn't calculate that in advance, <laughs> really? <Yes. laughs> 
<laughs> you didn't take that into account. The whole point was they were drilling in the darkness because when this, the, the part that the sun's directly hitting would be, you know, dissolving, exploding around them. Um, so uh, they have to hurry up. Uh, uh, Paul calls Trip to her uh, quarters because she needs someone to talk to in confidence you know, to, to get off her chest. Yeah, and, and he immediately candle shames her by telling her she's not supposed to have an open flame on the ship. Like, what? You got a pure oxygen environment here? <laughs> right, well, yeah. That's, I mean, there's probably regulation, but like, it's just do you just assume she didn't ask permission? This is a cultural yeah. thing? Um, so it it turns out that T'Pol needs to leave Enterprise immediately or her wedding will be canceled. Trip is surprised that T'Pol is in an arranged marriage with someone she doesn't love. Like how that's horrible. It's the worst thing ever. It's like it's a different culture, maybe. It, it's like exactly. most of the cultures on Earth through most of history, dude. Yeah. Oh no, on, on Earth we got rid of that a long time ago because it's so barbaric. <laughs> My grandparents were in an arranged marriage and were married for fifty some odd years and loved each other very much. You know, the the two people who uh, date and fall in love romantically is not necessarily a better formula. Then your parents picking out someone very nice for you. <laughs> and Thank you given very much. the current divorce rate, it doesn't always work out so great. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so Tripp's advice to her is based on the faulty assumption that humans are all about, first and foremost, making ourselves happy, as opposed to the Vulcan ideal of duty and obligation to others. Uh, and yeah. I, I, that's, I, mean, I think that's a false assumption that, oh, what you should do first and foremost is think of yourself i mean that's always the most important thing is what because what, everybody's what always so happy. happy when you do that i mean everybody when you think of yourself you get exactly what you want no one's goes looking for more and more and more and more and more and more <laughs> right right uh, and as a member of a paramilitary organization trip should know something about a higher duty, duty. Th- than to oneself yeah right also he does, though, eventually get around to making some good points, because I found myself in this scene, he, he keeps pushing on the idea that she needs to go back to mm-hmm. get married and leave the Enterprise, which will mean being away for at least a year. And she is like, everything she says is oriented towards, I've got to go back. And I'm right. saying to myself, then why did you invite him here? Isn't that a signal that you really secretly want out of this marriage? You're looking for a way to give yourself permission to stay. Right. And he doesn't end up saying it quite as well as I did. <laughs> yes. But he does ask, well, why did you want me here to begin with to talk to me? And she says, it was a mistake. And then he points out that she just knew about this wedding was coming up when she requested an extension on the wedding so that she could serve on the Enterprise. And now the extension request has been denied. But could that be a sign that you subconsciously want out of this thing? And he doesn't tie it back into the fact that she asked him here, which is the more relevant thing in the immediate context. But at least he does get to display some psychological insight into what's going on with her. Right. And then she claims that her subconscious mind doesn't control her decisions. Yeah. <laughs> no, but maybe it, maybe it doesn't control them, but maybe it's telling you something. Right. I do want to mention something I noticed, which is the director of this episode makes some weird decision to do super close-ups on T'Pol, like above the shoulder framing of the head, like you don't see your shoulders at all, and wide shots and everyone else in scenes with her for some reason. I, it's hmm. very weird. I don't know. Maybe she had like a shoulder injury. It's like she had a sling on or something. I don't know. It's just it's kind of a, f- a funny thing. Uh, not important. By the way, just a 
just a thought on Vulcan acting, because we mentioned how, you know, Vanek is all sneering and T'Pol is repressed rage and stuff. I remember reading a history of Star Trek once where they were talking about the problems they had casting the T'Pol part. Because what most people do who are actors, they're not fans of the show. And they are they know Vulcans are supposed to be non-emotional. And so they come in to audition and they give totally flat readings. You just no right. emotion at all. And that's not what Spock was. He was like repressing emotion. And right. so so the actors that have been successful, like uh Jolene Blaylock and uh Tim, Tim Russ. Russell. Uh, Tim Russ. Russ. Um, yep. who have been cast as Vulcans are the ones who get this and know that you need to play like there are emotions boiling under the surface, but I'm, I'm stopping them. What tends to happen is the actors, and this is based on Vulcan history, so it's fine. The reason they turned away from emotion was because they had too much rage. But if I were going in to audition for a Vulcan part, I would be tempted to play the reverse. Like, I'm secretly a Cyrenite or something, and I've got inner joy that I'm trying to repress. And, and, <laughs> that would be and, fun. Yeah. I'd like to see a, 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 repressive, a repressed happy Vulcan. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, back on the comet, uh, Travis uh, and, and Malcolm are, uh, you know, they're trying to get done, and they're packing up to go. And Travis falls into the hole on the comet and hurts his knee. And I'm thinking, how much gravity does this comet actually have where that you could fall from a two-meter hole and break your knee? Because, of course, you know, it, it looks like it has just normal Earth-style gravity. And yes. it's it just, it, it, again, you know, we've got these these points where you have these artificial, oh, no, what do we do now? You know, we've got the two hours until your side of the, the, the comet ends up facing the sun. You've got right. this happen. You've got something else that's coming up here with the shuttle falling through. And it's just like, Right. You just keep trying to stretch the story unnecessarily. Knock it off. Yeah. In terms of the gravity problem, I could have a fix for that because it is a solid surface. They were dealing with ice at this point, and his body could have rotated in such a way against the solid surface that he twisted his, his knee. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Okay. Uh, the, 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 the sun does start warming the comet faster than they expected. They, they aren't able to get back to the shuttle and take off in, in time. And and why have why are they still here? They've already got the core sample. Right. What were they of doing? The Icilium. So what? I it, guess they were packing up. Well, okay, but they start to trudge back, and they're worried about the sun rising. You know, and I'm going. Can't your suits protect you from the temperature? They're not very good spacesuits if they're not able well, to do that. It's not and the then, temperature. But then the yeah. ice starts to develop CGI fractures yep. that <laughs> right. are really obvious, and instead of Going towards the shuttle as quick as they can, they stop. They're kind of taking their time about it. And Siri yeah. needs to pipe up and say, it looks like you're not in the process of saving your lives. When ice starts cracking around you, move. <laughs> right, well, right. well, of course, ice is cracking everywhere except for the super mega big heavy shuttle sitting right in the middle of the comet. Well, it's not, it's not, the thing is, it's not supposed to be about the cracking. It's that the, it should, it should be vaporizing that's the mm -hmm. whole point is mm -hmm. as it heats it's going to it's going to sublimate from a solid to a gas and explode off the surface and become that part of the tail i mean that's what's supposed to be happening but yeah you know they have the cracking they get in the shuttle he lights off the thrusters and it 
they fall into a crevasse because that's apparently what shuttles do in Enterprises. They fall just, into crevasses. Just like in the shale episode that we had <laughs> yeah. a few episodes ago. Yeah, yes. we've seen this before. This seems to happen a lot to the shuttle. Um, they they don't have tractor beams in, in the Enterprise era, so they have grappling hooks, uh, and they don't <laughs> and, work. And, and even though the shuttle is capable of flying under its own power, for some reason it's not capable of flying under its own power to right, get back but, to the ship. Wait, they didn't say that the shuttle got broken. Like, they just for some reason, they have to grapple it out of the hole. Just fly it out of the hole. You yeah. fell well, in the hole, fly out of the hole. But I mean, know. well, the, but even the whole idea of the grappler is so ridiculous. They've got this spaceship that, you know, it's, again, it's, you know, m- meters, if not kilometers away. Right. And they're going to, you know, they're going to launch this cable, basically, and grab a hold of it. How much cable was on that stupid thing? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, they, I guess in space, you know, uh, they they could have m- kilometer long cable. That's, uh, oh, and it's not a thin. smart cable either because they have to fire it precisely, and they yep. they fire two cables. One of them grabs the shuttle, the other misses. But these aren't smart ends on the cable. It, you can't just say get that shuttle and have them direct themselves to the shuttle. Right, right. You've got to just manually fling them out there and hope they hit. Well, and then, and of course, <laughs> right. you know, some the random crew member who was f- flying the ship at the time wasn't good enough, so of course, Captain Archer has to step in and do it. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, because Meriwether's not there to fly it. Uh, so, to Paul suggests that uh, they ask Vanek for help with the attractive beam, and Archer lets his pride get in the way at first, but she tells him that's what the Vulcans expect him to do: is to be prideful and arrogant, and you should show them up, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and of course, they save the the shuttle. Yeah, with a tractor beam that magically only pulls on a shuttle, but not on surrounding ice and debris. Yes, thankfully that would be that would be a, a really in- inconvenient for the CGI guys to have to CGI all that too. So, so uh, in the end, T'Pol decides to stay, take Chip's advice, and stay on the Enterprise, um, and that involves eating some pecan pie uh, for some reason. That's the very last shot: is her in her quarters with her meditation candles and a slice of pecan pie. Yeah, which earlier she had he had offered her some, and she said it's mostly sugar. And he says, "Well, yes. it may not be good for the body, but it's good for the soul." So now she's taking care yes. of her soul. It's pecan pie for the soul. <laughs> yes, that's a new Irma Bombeck book. <laughs> pecan pie for the Vulcan soul. And the ice with the Vulcans is not really broken at this point. No, I mean, a little bit, maybe. Maybe it's uh, T'Pol's icy personality that's been broken mm-hmm. open. So sure. We'll see. Uh, Father Corey, last thoughts on this episode? None. Yeah, glad this one's over. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jimmy, what's your last thoughts on this episode? Ditto. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, it was a filler. It's clearly a filler episode. Not much to to talk about there, and um, you know, a couple of a couple of neat character moments, and that's about it. All right. So we want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including we suffer for you. We suffer for you, exactly. so you don't have to. And so this week we're thanking Kathy S., Aaron W., Brooke K., Joel L., and Pamela F. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits this show every week. So that's it from us. What did you think of Breaking the Ice? Do you like it better than we did? Let us know. Uh, we can. You can do so by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia or 
via an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Star Trek Discovery first season episode, Lethe. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Yeah, glad to be here, and thank you, Dom. And Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, if you can pie, it might not be good for the body, but it sure is good for the soul. <laughs>